Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in godliness, or in righteousness, sorry. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's go to him in prayer, and then we'll get into the body of our text this morning from Mark. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word truly this morning. That, Lord, as we search the, this passage for the truth from your word, that, Lord, we, we might not be dismayed uh, that there are double brackets here in our ESV translations, that, uh, that, Lord, we may not be dismayed that your word has somehow become errant or uninspired. Lord, we know that your word is inerrant and inspired. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would reveal to us how we should approach a passage such as this. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the truth from your word. That Lord, uh, though this passage may not have been penned by uh, the, the writer of the book of Mark, Lord, we know that there are biblical truths contained here. And Lord, they, are, they point to other places that we know are inspired. And so Lord God, I pray that this morning you would just help us to understand. Lord, give me grace as I uh, attempt to, to preach both or, or both to, to lecture and to preach this morning, uh, that, Lord, I might do justice to your word uh, in some small way. And, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would operate on our hearts and lives as only you can. Lord, for we know the reading of your word is powerful. Lord, there is no other source, infallible source of truth. There is no other place that we can go to find everything we need for all of Christian faith and life. Lord, we trust in your word this morning, and we trust in you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. A little something about myself and, and my wife Ashley um, that uh, you might not know if you haven't known us for a good number of years. Uh, we actually ran a relatively successful home blog. You remember home blogs back in the day? Uh, you get websites full of articles and things like that about renovations and doing uh, things like that. I said I don't work with my hands much. I, I did some renovations and things like that throughout my house. And uh, my father-in-law, Kevin, who is usually back there at the sound booth, uh, helped us out a lot too. And so we uh, did a whole bunch of product projects around the house. If you've been to my house, you know you've, you've seen like some of the fruits of that labor. And uh, so we ran a, a home blog that got several thousand hits uh, every couple of weeks. And, uh, and we really enjoyed it. We were featured in a couple of magazines and things like that. It was fun. It was fun stuff. But writing is hard. I learned that in the first uh, couple of months of trying to do this. Writing is difficult. This was something that Ashley sort of started on her own and kind of made it her thing uh, to, to start with. I was kind of there in the background helping, but um, we started writing together more and more over the course of time. And writing as a couple is interesting because you start editing one another's posts and you, you try to have a, a voice that's sort of your own but not too different and things like that. But sometimes, sometimes, you know, I would write an article, 
Uh, and she would go, well, this is too technical for our audience. It's too, like, rote and, like, because I, I like to be very precise in wording and everything else. It was very technical sounding. It was kind of dry, right? And she was like, well, it needs to be spiced up a little bit, right? Like, give it some more feeling. Give it some more of the warm and fuzzies and things like that. And so she would come in and she would write it maybe a little bit more casually in a few places. And interestingly, if you read those, those articles before we finally agreed upon a final draft that actually sounded unified, you'd find that you could tell where my writing stopped and hers began, right? Uh, she could uh, go through this and she would you know, kind of try to write like me maybe, but like it just didn't come across as my voice. Same thing for her. If I would go in and edit one of her posts, I would write more technically or I'd use different turns of phrase. Uh, I would write maybe less casually. I'd use more commas because I love commas. If you've ever seen me write, you know that I love commas. Um, there you go. Uh, random facts about Greg. There you go. Um, but you'd find that you could tell where one person stopped and the other began. And that's what is kind of happening here in the book of Mark in verses 9 through 20 today. Let's read it. Um, I'm not going to have you stand for this because, as you'll see, uh, I am not convinced and most scholars are not convinced that this ending was originally there in the book of Mark as penned by Mark. And so, I don't necessarily want to treat it as scripture this morning, so just bear with me and I'll get to why. Um, and you'll also see that we lose nothing here. We lose nothing. Uh, but I'll, I'll get there in a moment. But let's read it here for just a moment. Starting in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, it says this, Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they, came and went, or they, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, they will drink, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs." Sounds like scripture, right? Seems like a legitimate ending to the book of Mark. It, it is a little strange. I admit that the book of Mark seems to end at verse 8, and it says, uh, and this isn't in the slides at the moment, but that's okay. It says, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's a really weird ending to the book of Mark, but that is what we believe to be the ending of the book of Mark as it was originally written. There's a different style and grammar in verses 9 through 20 that 
makes it distinct from the rest of the book, makes us wonder what happened here. It's also, and this is the most telling part, this passage is absent from the most ancient manuscripts. So when we think about how to take all of these fragments of manuscripts, and I'll get there in a minute, to figure out what is, uh, what is actually, what was actually written by the original author, we, we look through the oldest ones and go, what's in the oldest stuff and what's missing, in the, or what's missing compared to the newer stuff? Where might things have been attempted to be added? Things like that. It's also interesting that this particular passage that we see here is not referenced by any of the early church fathers except a couple very much later on. Um, the, the early church fathers uh, spoke prolifically about the entire New Testament except for a few individual places where we believe uh, these passages were added after the fact. Therefore, because of these evidences, this passage is questioned as to its authenticity. I admit that this morning, by the way, that this is going to be a little bit more of a lecture up front about biblical inerrancy and about uh, textual criticism and things like that before we get into the word. I promise we're going to get to the word this morning. Um, but I want you to, to have that passage that we read this morning as we stood resounding in your mind. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching that we may be complete for every good work. So we need to know what God has said. We get after what God has said and we try to figure out what precisely God inspired these writers to pen when they first penned it. But you might be asking now if, if I'm saying that this particular passage uh, is probably not Scripture, that is, inspired, inerrant Scripture, then you might say, well, th- then does the Bible have errors? You might be thinking, does the Bible have errors? By the way, if this is your first week, uh, weird first week to show up, but we're going to get at it. All right? No, the Bible does not contain errors. Okay? It is inerrant. It does not have errors. It is inspired, as in God, through the Holy Spirit, ministered to men who wrote these passages by the words that God inspired them to write, right? So we can go to the Greek, and we can go to the Hebrew, and we can pick those words apart because God intended that specific word to be there at that specific place. But we do believe that the Bible, as originally penned by the authors of the books in its original languages, is the inerrant, inspired word of God. Those are important distinguishing factors, okay? The Bible, as originally penned by the authors of the books in its original languages, those two things are the qualifiers for what is Scripture and what is not Scripture, and so we seek after those things which were originally written. If, so, if something was not originally penned by the author, then it could contain some error. That is not to say that anything written by some other author is necessarily erroneous. But you should not trust it as you trust Scripture. Likewise, if something was mistranslated from the original Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, then it w- could contain error. Does that make sense? This is why we stick to translations, by the way, that are vetted by scholars, theologians, and biblical experts who pour through all these manuscripts. 
Let me just give a quick plug in, my, in the course of my uh, intro lecture here for solid biblical translations. We're big fans of the ESV uh, here, uh, the English Standard Version. Um, the NASB is an incredible version of the, the, the Bible, a translation of the Bible. The CSB, very readable, helpful. Uh, the NIV, also very readable and helpful. Uh, and the KJV, uh, as, as archaic as the language may be, uh, a very good translation of, of the scriptures uh, as they understood the scriptures from the 1600s. Right? So they didn't have all the most ancient manuscripts that we have now, which is why in the KJV, there's no brackets around Mark, 9 through, or Mark 16, 9 through 20. But we've gotten our hands on these more ancient manuscripts. But anyway, what, what I'm getting at here with these different translations uh, is that we should stick to translations of the Bible. If you don't know Koine Greek or you don't know Hebrew or Aramaic such that you could reliably translate these things for yourself, you should stick to a translation that is vetted by scholars and who, that, that has been thought through and translated reliably and peer-reviewed and everything else so that we can go, okay, I know this is relatively reliable, right? So let's stick to translations. See, let me make, a, make clear, there's a distinction here between a translation and an interpretation. A translation of the scriptures is an attempt by scholars to bring out the meaning of the original words, without bias toward a given viewpoint. They want to take those words from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, they want to bring those things out, and they want to just go, hey, here are the facts, the raw, unadulterated facts about what God has said in his word. Here, here are all the words translated for you. Draw your conclusions as you see fit. They're not driving it at any particular viewpoint. That's why biblical uh, translations that are, that are done by, uh, by atheists and, and people who do not believe in Christ uh, are actually sometimes helpful because they really do want to get at just the meaning of the word. Like, let's just translate this thing as a piece of literature. can be helpful. Think of it like the journalistic ideals that you are taught in school, right? I'm not talking about modern journalism, right? I'm talking about the journalistic ideals that you were taught in school. What, what were the what were the sort of ideals that you got? Like find the facts, report the facts, right? Leave your opinion out of it, right? That's good journalism. Journalism says this is what the facts are. Leave the other stuff out of it. My personal opinion does not matter. This is what happened. That's a translation. It's saying this is what these words mean. Let the cards fall where they may. And we can draw our own conclusions. An interpretation, however, is less reliable. It's more like a sermon on a passage than a grammatical analysis of a passage. Generally speaking, these interpretations have viewpoints and are unapologetic about being biased toward those viewpoints. Thinking again about the, uh, journalism, interpretations are more like the news outlets that we have today. You might like what they say. They uh, might even be reporting the truth and some of the facts. But there's a good chance there's a personal bias of the network or the reporter that you're listening to that is influencing which facts they give you or what sort of bent they have in a particular uh, segment. I'd love it if they would just remove the opinions to a separate segment, right? Give me the facts first and then say, okay, here's my opinion on the matter, right? 
I think that's preferable. Likewise, I think that a great unbiased as possible biblical translation, ESV, NASB, CSB, NIV, KJV, all the others that are reliable translations, that's that alongside a, a good commentary is a better thing, right? So you get the opinion of the commentator that's clearly removed from the word of God. I think that's better. I like to see that sort of thing. So if you're, if you're into the, the message or the Passion Translation, things like that, uh, remember that the, those are not actual translations even though they may masquerade as them, okay? Be careful because now you have the word of God intermingled with the opinions of man. This can be dangerous. I'm not saying that those are never helpful. I am saying that they can be dangerous. So anyway, I digress. I'm about halfway through my lecture. I know you all are waiting for the sermon. As part of this translation process that scholars use to figure out what the word of God says, uh, they use these things called manuscripts to determine what the original writing said. Now, it may horrify you to know that we have precisely zero of the original manuscripts of the Bible. None. None of them. Not a single one originally penned by the author. Maybe it horrifies you. Don't be too horrified. Because just because we don't have the originals on file somewhere where we can go and pull them out doesn't mean we can't be certain that the Bible is not lost. Right? The Bible is, is not lost. See, when translating the New Testament in particular, translators work from thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. They take these fragments, these whole books, these different pieces of literature, and they line them up next to each other, and they go, okay, we've got all of these different things. We've got a few minor differences here, these copies of copies. By the way, if you're like, oh, well, like, why are there differences? Well, you try to translate, rewrite a whole book by hand and not make a single spelling error or punctuation error. Right? These are written by, by human people, copied by human people. In good faith, though. They were copied in good faith, generally speaking. And the parts where they were not copied in good faith and they were modified, it's very, very clear. Because none of the rest of the manuscripts tend to have those same edits in place. And so we can look back through the 5,800 or so manuscripts that we have of the Greek New Testament, and we can go, okay, this person obviously added this thing over here. Let's not use that. This is what the original said through textual criticism and all sorts of other interesting mechanisms that I don't have time to go into. But if you're like worried about, oh, there's only 5,800 manuscripts, well, I'd like to make a comparison there. Some people would say that the Bible uh, is, it, we can't confirm and, and really be confident that the Bible is inerrant and that it has been preserved over the course of several centuries, actually two millennia, and, and there's question there. But nobody questions whether the Iliad is actually what Homer wrote, do they? They're like, oh yeah, well this is the Iliad. And it's pretty reliable like translation of the Iliad. Yeah, there are translational differences, but like they're pretty certain what the manuscript originally said, right? Guess what? There's only 643 extant manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. That's like 10%, a little bit over 10% of the number of manuscripts we have of the Greek New Testament. And the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament are more reliable than those 
from the Iliad. And in fact, interestingly, uh, those extant manuscripts from, uh, for the Iliad all dated from about 500 years after it was originally written. With the Bible, within 100 years. One or two generations. We could be pretty, pretty certain. <laughs> I say pretty certain. I would stake my salvation on it kind of certain that the Bible says what it says. But again, there lies the problem for Mark 16, 9 through 20. It isn't there in our oldest manuscripts. It's generally not referenced by the early church fathers, and it's very different stylistically in comparison to the rest of the book of Mark. Like the blog that Ash and I used to run, it's clear that Mark stopped writing at verse 8 and someone else began writing at verse 9 at a much later date. And it's interesting, though, because like Mark ends kind of abruptly, right? kind of want to add something, don't you? Well, it ends with, and they, uh, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You're going to end a book like that. End of story, Mark says. Close enough. <laughs> Mark was very hurried in his writing, uh, and I think got out everything he decided that he, he needed to get out. I, speaking from a, from a perspective of inspiration, the Holy Spirit just said, hey, you're good. Stop there. That's all that they need to know. That's, not, that's all that the, the church at Rome that you're writing to right now needs to know. And they can find out the rest of it. They can get to the rest of it through these other witnesses that I have. Matthew and John and Luke. But I think we all feel that tension in the storyline, and so we see that, like, we kind of want something there. So the theory goes that some years after the book of Mark was written and the other Gospels had begun circulating, a scribe, intending to give Mark a fitting closing, uh, added details from Matthew, Luke, and Acts, and John to the ending of Mark, so that you could get a more full picture if you just read the book of Mark. And the scribe was well-intentioned, no doubt. And so they, they wrote it here, and uh, it was then reproduced by others, and has, actually, and has actually found its way into many newer manuscripts, because they said, this seems right. In fact, there are no pieces of this passage that disagree with the witness of the rest of Scripture, which is why I say we we really lose nothing, it, whether we move this aside and do not count it as scripture or we, we keep it and we, we appreciate its witness here. We lose very little either way and we gain very little either way. But what do we do with this? Because for some time the church has accepted it as scripture and that has to count for something. But if it wasn't written by Mark and it was likely to have been written down by someone who was not an eyewitness of Jesus' actions after his death, then what's the, what's the deal here? So this morning as we approach this passage, I want to approach this passage with caution. This is the end of my lecture portion. We'll get to the actual preaching here. I want you to approach it with, with caution, though, because there could be error here. I don't believe that there is much error here, uh, but we should approach it with caution like we would approach any sermon, like we would approach any gospel-saturated book, like we would approach any podcast by a reliable Christian teacher. You, you have to approach those things with a measure of guardedness. This is the word of God, as translated. But this passage that's called out here may not be. So approach it with caution. 
Maybe you disagree with me here and you're like, man, I think this is scripture. The Holy Spirit testifies in my heart that this is, this is good. Well, I would agree with you that it's good. It's actually true. That's why it's included here. This, the church has said this is good, good enough that like, we can't really tell a whole lot of a difference in, those, uh, in some of those manuscripts. And so they, they, they said, let's, let's keep it for now. But that's it, right? like I said. There's, there's a difference here, and we have to be careful. That's all I'm saying. But we don't gain anything or lose anything, no matter which side we end up on here. And so for the rest of the sermon, I want to show you that we, that we do gain nothing through the substance of these words, and that's not gained elsewhere in Scripture. That's the thing. We have the counsel of the whole Word of God to tell us the whole story. And so we don't necessarily need these words. They don't reveal to us anything that's new or different. There's a couple of smaller points, perhaps, and I'll get to those. But generally speaking, we don't lose any major point of doctrine. And so we can rightly, I would say, uh, treat this as uh, a well-meaning scribe's attempt to give us the rest of the story. And so again, for the rest of the sermon, I want to kind of prove that to you by going to other passages that say the same things that Mark did but we know are inspired. So we start here in verses 9 through 11 in the book of Mark, chapter 16. It says, Now when he rose early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and, le- and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had, not, had been seen by her, they would not believe it. This is a short summary of a grander passage in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, which I will read to you now. But Mary, as Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What a much more vibrant picture that is painted there in the book of John. Well, the well-intentioned author or editor of Mark here, this uh, scribe, presents a summary of the story. John gives us a more full picture of what happened. And what an incredible picture it is. See, without these verses from John, we're left by Mark's editor to wonder whether Jesus did, or or, or we're left by Mark himself, sorry, uh, to wonder whether Jesus did anything or said anything after his resurrection. If Mark stopped in verse 8, then we don't know what Jesus said or did. But because the Holy Spirit inspired John to write these words. We have a, now a full picture of what God or what Jesus did after he was uh, he rose from the grave. 
And that's the joy of having the inspired, inerrant Word of God. He uses multiple perspectives of the same story to fill in the necessary details. We don't need some scribe coming along later giving us some summary of the other books. We just need those other books. We need John, we need Luke, we need Matthew to tell us what happened. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire Mark to write additional words after the, they fled from the tomb. But he did inspire three other men to write the very words that we need. See, look, Mark's editor was well-intentioned and his words are helpful in finishing out the story. We need to know that Jesus announced himself to Mary Magdalene, but the way that John portrays the interaction is so much more vibrant. And that vibrant story is filled with hope. This is the first appearance by the resurrected Christ. Incredible. And he appeared to Mary Magdalene, a woman who the editor of Mark rightly said had been possessed by seven demons. This woman had been possessed and she had a very checkered, probably isn't even the word for it, a checkered past. It just shows us how merciful and loving Jesus really is. That the first person to whom he appears after his resurrection is this woman who has been called out of darkness and into light. I mean, severe darkness. Possession by seven demons. No matter what you've done or where you've been, Jesus can save. That's what this passage tells us. The editor of Mark doesn't tell us this, but John does. John tells us everything that we need to know. No matter where you've been or what you've done, Jesus can save. He loves you. Look, all you have to do is repent. Believe in him. Trust in him. And if that seems too hard, I would remind you that he is worth every supposed cost. Every single bit. And if that seems too easy, I would remind you that he paid the price. We sang it just a minute ago. He paid the price with his life to give grace and forgiveness to sinners. I say it often. I, I stole it from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, that the grace that we experience is free, but it is not cheap. This passage reminds us that Jesus paid the price for even the most wretched of sinners. And if there's any of you that feels like you're too far gone, you're not. You're not. Maybe today is the day that you realize that you are not too far gone and that the saving hand of God has met you where you are. Simply trust in Jesus. That's all it takes. Trust in Jesus. See, Jesus meets us where we are, just as he did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is what the editor of Mark describes in verses 12 and 13. It says, After these things he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. This is a summary of a full story that's found in Luke 24, 13 through 35, if you'd like to make a note. I'm not going to read the whole story here. Again, it's Luke 24, 13 through 35. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read a few verses, just 18 through 27, to give a decent picture of kind of what happened there. It said one of them, as they were venturing along the road, named Cleopas, um, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in the, there in these days? 
And he said to him, said to them, sorry, uh, what things? I love that. Jesus is like, what things? What are you talking about? I love it. Sorry, this is Jesus talking. Uh, he says, what things? What are you talking about? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yet, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. For some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, this is Jesus again, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all, the, uh, all the, that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, what a more vibrant story. What in the world? Jesus walking up next to these guys who had known him personally. They didn't recognize him. And he's like, who are you talking about? Talking about Jesus of Nazareth? He, he died. And we're, and we're a little sad that he's dead because like, we, thought he was, we thought he was the Savior. As if they didn't believe that he would come back after hearing him verbally tell them with his own mouth that he was going to come back. What an incredible thing that they would go, oh, no. I'm not sure that I really want to believe that. And then even on top of that, they get the testimonies of the women coming and telling them, hey, like, this, is what, this is what happened. I saw the angel and they told us he's alive. And they're like, ah, maybe not. Maybe not. We're just going to continue in our despair. Despite the, the, those testimonies, and they were doubtful at best and fully disbelieving at worst. I don't know about y'all, but uh, I, I'm kind of tired of not knowing who to believe or you know, what's going on in the world today. kind of tired of it. I feel like there's just so much information. Call it information. I'm going to put quotes around that. So many opinions and partial facts and skewed statistics and take your pick, right? So many of these things nowadays that I, I'm, I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't know what to believe some of the time. I, and I find it hard to even discern the truth for myself sometimes. I, I just kind of throw up my hands and go, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on in some of these things. I, I wish that I did. I wish that I had the time to fully parse every bit of information that I possibly could on a subject and then go, oh yeah, I think I had the truth of it now. But there's so much in the 24-hour news cycle that you know, even if you pick and choose, you'd find yourself in a, in, in a better than a full-time job uh, just trying to figure out what in the world is going on. But we didn't need a modern 24-hour news cycle and social media to confuse us. Let's be real. We're already easily confused on our own. These disciples, despite having heard Jesus teach about his resurrection, and despite having heard the, the, the testimony from their friends, these people that they knew very well and didn't think that they would lie to him, they were like, ah, I don't know about that. They were skeptical. They refused to believe that he had actually risen. Sometimes we hear the truth and we just refuse to accept it, don't we? But Jesus is gracious. I love that he is so gracious. He meets us where we're at. 
Even in your skepticism, he meets you where you're at. Maybe today you've been skeptical about some things. Maybe you've been skeptical about Scripture. And finally, like, you're in this moment and you get to hear someone trying to be, and I am trying to be, intellectually consistent with what I see here. Maybe today you, you finally get a breath of fresh air where you don't just get the answer, well, the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, but you get the nuanced answer of, the, well, there's some technical things behind this, and there's conversations to be had by, by myself or by people more, much more learned than me. Jesus is gracious. He meets us where we are. He, he comes to us in our unbelief. He says, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk with you. He does this for the disciples on the Emmaus Road. I love that not only does he just walk with them, right? Later on it says that, her, that, that their, uh, their eyes were opened. Jesus supernaturally opened their eyes to recognize him. This is true of how he operates for us as well. See, it's not just, oh, I now understand Jesus, therefore I believe. It's something that God does. He works in us. Have you ever had this experience? I mean, I think it's pretty common. Not only when we meet uh, Jesus for the first time, not only when we believe in him for the first time, but even throughout our Christian lives, one moment we're kind of walking along as if some, nothing is kind of out of the ordinary, and then the next we find that Jesus has opened our eyes to something that we had never really seen before, which either convicts our hearts or revives our spirits or causes us to walk in greater thanksgiving. If you haven't had that sort of regular experience throughout your Christian life, I, I, I apologize for making this sound like it's something you should have, but I, I hope for that for you that you would get into the Word of God and that you would find something in there that just changes you by the power of the Spirit in the moment, that God would just open your eyes. If you can remember a time when you didn't believe in Jesus, I, I bet you had this experience. Do you remember what it felt like before you believed and once you did believe? There's a difference. Eyes closed, eyes open. God did that, by the way. If you've ever read Romans 8 and 9 and finished it only to find yourself weeping tears of joy at God's sovereignty and salvation, then you know what I'm talking about. Some of us have had this experience. Or maybe you've quoted John 3.16 acting like salvation is an act of will on our part and then gone back to verse 1 to see that only God can act first by causing us to be born again. And in doing so, he opens our eyes. He makes us new. He makes us a new creature that can see all the amazing grace that he has for us. And then when we finally see it, it becomes irresistible to our souls for we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but God has finally made us alive and we can go and we can place our faith in him and even that is a gift from God. Or maybe you've been in sin and the command to love your wife and give yourself up for her or the command to submit to your husband as to the Lord finally rang true. Ooh. Maybe just one moment you read that and you go, oh, I didn't realize that's what it was supposed to be like. God opens your eyes. You can read those passages time after time after time after time after time, and then all of a sudden, something changes. 
That's God saying, no more blinders. See it for real now. Look, again, I've said it before. It's not that Mark's editor was unhelpful here, but the depth brought to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Luke allows us to see how gracious Jesus is in walking along with these disciples and then revealing himself to them supernaturally. And then we finally end with the Great Commission, which I'll read in its entirety here from Mark 16, 14 through 20. It says this, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, uh, proclaim the gospel into, or sorry, to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. There are several source stories here that I'll just give you rapid fire. Uh, one from Luke 24, 36 and following. So if you want to go there, you can. Uh, just put it in your notes. Uh, and then the other is, uh, is the Ascension, uh, which is recorded in Luke 24, 51 and also in Acts 1, uh, if you'd like to kind of cross-reference a little bit. I'm not going to read those this morning. But I want us to focus on the Great Commission, which is recorded by Mark's editor here. It's a little different than Matthew's version of the Great Commission, which reads this way from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." The, like I said, the editor's version in Mark is a little different from the Great Commission that's recorded in Matthew. See, Matthew's version is helpful in reminding us whose authority we operate under. It starts with the, that proclamation, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A lot of people like to start at verse 19. I don't think you can do anything with verse 19 until you get verse 18 first. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... It says, what does therefore mean? Founded upon the thing I just said, now go. So we get this idea of Jesus' authority, and he sends us under his authority. And so when we preach the gospel, we don't speak for ourselves, we don't preach for ourselves, we don't preach our own thoughts. We operate under his authority. We speak his gospel. Matthew's version also reminds us that Jesus does not leave us. He may not be visibly here beside us, but his presence is nonetheless with us as we go about our lives on mission for him. He'll never leave us. But we do have a responsibility. That's the middle verse. We must go. Both Matthew himself and Mark's editor uh, emphasize that we are a sent people. We are not sent home with the gospel to bury it in a hole and squander it. We are sent to all nations to invest the gospel 
which has been entrusted to us by Jesus himself. Do the well-intentioned scribe here uh, wrote uh, this longer ending in this different sort of version of the, uh, of the Great Commission. Uh, and he was correct. It says, whoever believes and is baptized, in verse 16, uh, will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so we must go. We must go. We must preach the gospel. He's right in saying this. Now, let's get at some difficulties here. could be problematic if you based your entire theology of salvation on this one line. Again, going back to 16, whoever, uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. You might be thinking, huh, is he saying that baptism is a hard requirement for salvation? That's a work by which we are saved. The answer is no. We see this from the course of the rest of Scripture. In fact, we also see it here. If you, if you give this a, a, just a careful reading, you'll see that it says whoever believes and is baptized, one category of people, right? And then it says, but whoever does not believe will not be saved. It doesn't say those who are not belie- do not believe or are not baptized will be condemned, right? So even a careful reading of the potentially uninspired version of, of Mark here, uh, still helpful. So don't, don't go out of your way to, to base your, uh, your theology upon uh, something uh, like that line and think, oh, well, now that means that baptism is, is, is required for salvation as a work by which we are saved. And we know this is not the case because the man on the cross beside Jesus is a primary example Mark doesn't include his conversion, interestingly, but Luke 24, 43 records that Jesus promised that that man would be with him in paradise, that is heaven, without having been baptized. So we can't make baptism a hard requirement for salvation. But baptism is very closely associated with conversion, so much so that the two are mentioned often in one breath. Peter's sermon in Acts 2 38 does precisely this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, repent, be baptized. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Be baptized is a command of obedience after saving faith. So if you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus, then baptism is the logical next step. It's the outward sign of the covenant that God has made with you by regenerating you and causing you to believe. I, th- I think everybody thinks that this is that baptism tends to be like this moment of like, oh yeah, I believed, I made the decision, and it becomes a very me-centric thing. It's not. It's a proclamation of what God has done in you, right? This is a, a it's a proclamation of that regeneration and faith that God has placed in your heart. It's a covenant sign. It's an external covenant sign that says this person may enter into the visible community of faith. Three years ago, I preached a, almost three years ago, I preached a sermon on baptism that I wish I had on recording. I should reproduce that in written form somewhere. Can't go there today. But I will say this, in two weeks, we will be baptizing at least two people from this congregation. If you're interested in being baptized and taking that next step of obedience, then please let me or Pastor Brandon know. We'd love to kind of talk with you about your faith, where you're at, and help you take that next step, even if you've neglected it for a little while. 
I will say this, it is highly irregular for a Christian to believe and not be, about, be baptized pretty soon thereafter. But we're okay with, hey, sometimes people don't really understand what's going on. You're convicted in a certain way, and you go, man, I did need to be baptized. Well, let's do that now. Let's do it today. Right? Not, well, not today, but let's talk about it, and then we'll go. We're not, uh, we're not sp- spontaneous baptizers. Uh, here, we want to have a, co- a conversation with you to just make sure that you understand what you're saying when you are baptized. But uh, we want to meet with you and talk through that with you. It is the next logical step. The question here that really should be posed is, if I believe in Jesus and he commanded me to be baptized, why should I not be baptized? So if you find yourself uh, thinking, well, like, I don't really want to be baptized or I'm not going to do that one thing, you probably should start asking, like, is this conversion thing real for me? Right? You should be asking, is my faith real? If the, if the most simple command that Jesus issues, which is be dunked in water. If you can't follow that, then you should ask, like, what's going on in my heart? Where's the unrepentant sin? Right? So ask those questions. And I'm getting close to the end here, hopefully. I apologize, this has been a little bit longer than I imagined. Mark's uh, Mark's editor, though, uh, gives us some additional accompanying signs. I'm just going to rapid fire them at you. Uh, He says that they would cast out demons, speak in tongues, pick up serpents. These are all in uh, the book of Acts. He also says that they would heal people. That's also in the book of Acts. These things happened. We, we don't have to worry about that. However, there is one piece that we might get a little question on, drinking deadly poison. This did not happen in the course of Scripture, uh, so far as, we can, as, as, so far as uh, I, can, I can tell by doing a, a study here, and I think that everybody uh, that I've read confirms that for me, uh, doing a little bit of uh, reading. Uh, drinking deadly poison may or may not have happened. There's a legend about the Apostle John uh, having consumed deadly poison and surviving that, but it is a legend. Right? And so maybe the, the editor of Mark here has added one small thing for us uh, that, uh, that maybe he shouldn't have. Um, so maybe leave that part aside. Uh, but let's just say this. Uh, please don't go out drinking poison or handling snakes. There's no command here to do these things. Okay? All right, there's none of that. There's no command. So you, look, you, you should avoid testing God in general. Okay? Don't just go out trying to test God. He may see fit to intervene miraculously to lend you strength in the, to the to lend strength to the proclamation of the gospel, but it's not for us to try to reproduce these miracles artificially somehow. Okay, simply do as you've been commanded: go out and preach the gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that Jesus has commanded. Do those things and let God handle the miracles. Okay, all right. But that's the, that's the thing. We must go and we must do as we've been commanded. Mark's editor's words uh, here end with the ascension, and I think that's a fitting place, despite this being an addition, it's a fitting place to end the story and the sermon as well. Um, I, won't, I won't go to the place in, in Luke and Acts where the, the ascension is talked about, but needless to say, Jesus did ascend to the right hand of God the Father and sat, sat at his right hand and and so he has this position of authority and this position of mediation. I read this morning that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. He is human so that he can intercede for us on our behalf, and he is God so that he can effect salvation for us. What an amazing thing. We are a sent people. 
We must go and do what Jesus has commanded, and so we must operate in that authority that he has. As he sits at the right hand of God the Father, he lends us his authority to go out into this world and preach the gospel. We have to go and preach this gospel that we've spent nearly two years, a little bit over two years, working through. Started Mark in uh, September 2020. I've been working through it ever since. If you don't know the gospel by now, come talk to me. Talk to Pastor Brandon. Let's, let's have a conversation. I want to tell you about the gospel. If there are people in your life who don't know what it is, and you do, do them the grace of telling them about him. And look, you get, you've gotten, over the course of the last two years, if you've been here the whole time, or even over the last week, or even just this week, you've gotten the gospel that Jesus came and he died for sinners. You've gotten the gospel, and you've gotten it from God's word. That's, what a gift is that, that we get it from the inspired and inerrant word of God. Don't squander the gift you've been given in hearing the gospel straight from the inspired and inerrant word of God. There is a way in which I can tell you about the gospel with my own words, and it's helpful and good, and God uses that for conversion. Awesome. But there is an additional grace given to you that you can sit and you can read the word of God straight from his own mouth. What an amazing gift. Don't squander that gift. Other sources, like Mark's editor here, sermons, podcasts, books, whatever it is, those sources are helpful and good. But it is an even greater gift to just read God's word as he inspired it. We began with a sermon with 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God. In fact, the talking about translational differences here. I, I, like, I like the translation there. It's not breathed out by God. It, it's, it's more like, in the Greek, Greek, it's more like God-breathed. It's one word. Love that. All Scripture is God-breathed. And so before every, every service, your pastors meet backstage. Not because we don't like to hang out with you guys. Um, we meet back there because we, we need encouragement from one another. We need to talk about kind of what the sermon is going to be like. We need to work off of one another a little bit, and we want to sit back there and pray. So whoever, uh, whoever is not preaching the sermon prays for the other uh, that, that Sunday. And so we meet back there to do that. And uh, more often than not, maybe, maybe not too, too often, but close to 50%, uh, we need a little bit of encouragement we worked hard to prepare a sermon and try to make it effective. Maybe we're nervous. Like, is it okay to say that? I, like, sometimes I get nervous. Like, there is fear and trembling that comes into, like, preaching the word of God. And I, I, I'm nervous sometimes. But sometimes, I'm, I'll be honest with you, maybe, like, maybe there's, this is the flesh in me and I'm fighting this, all right? But there's a little bit of nervousness in me that's like, am I going to present it well? Am I going to give the right illustrations? Am I going to keep people's attention uh, you know, that's a big question for today's sermon. You'll have to tell me after the fact. Um, but there's some nervousness there. We're like, what if I'm not effective? What if I don't, like, what if I don't speak right? What if I don't say the right things to like, affect people's hearts and their minds like I want them to? And then we realize, wait a second. It's not about that. It's about the word of God. And so undoubtedly, one of us will remind the other that we are going to read God's word today. 
and the, all things sort of fall into place from there. Because we realize that no matter how bad or good other parts of the sermon might be, we know that you have heard from the Lord today through his word. What an amazing gift. So nurture that gift. Nurture the gift of God's word. As you hear it proclaimed in sermons, as you hear it, as you hear it read, as you listen to it on audio, as you read it, as you study, as you go to the original languages. By the way, lexicons are not all that scary. Strong's Concordance, not that hard to use. Feel free. You've given these awesome tools, go get those tools and nurture the gift that God has given to you in having a physical Bible that you can sit and read or sit and tap around on on a screen. Not all Christians have had this gift, but you have this gift. Get into it. Study it, cherish it, read it to your friends, your family, and whoever will listen. Because the best way to know God, your sin, the gospel, and how to respond is to get it straight from the source. I always try to get back to primary sources whenever I read. Who said that to begin with? Well, maybe I'll just read that guy rather than the guy who distilled it down into the smaller book. Go straight to the source because no preacher or theologian can do better than God's word. Every Sunday when I stand up to read the the passage, and I, I am closing, I promise I have like three sentences left. Every Sunday as I stand to read God's word to you, and we all stand together, I say a prayer. Maybe you don't recognize that as a prayer. It is a prayer, though. And I want to close with the same prayer this morning. This isn't a bow your heads and close your eyes kind of prayer. I simply want to say, may God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.